Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. From KQED in San Francisco, this is the Writer's Block. Hey, I'm Jocelyn Jackson. I am a full-time writer, I'm primarily a novelist. I've written four novels so far, Gods in Alabama, Between Georgia, That Girl Who Stopped Swimming, and Backseat Saints, which is the story of a woman named Rosemary Lolly, who was actually a minor character in one of my previous novels, In Gods in Alabama. And um, it's not a sequel. You could read the books in either order, but I, I think they're thematically related. Um, I'm going to be reading from chapter one, so I don't. I feel like it kind of sets up the story, so I don't need to tell you too much about it. I think you'll get an idea of where we're going uh, if we just dive right on in, so I guess that's what I'll do. Part one, A Marriage Made of Swords. Chapter one, Amarillo, Texas, 1997. It was an airport gypsy who told me that I had to kill my husband. She may have been the first to say the words out loud, but she was only giving voice to a thing I'd been trying not to know for a long, long time. When she said that it was him or me, the words rang out like church bells, shuddering through my bones. For two days, they sat in the pit of my belly, making me sick. I had no reason to trust her, and I'd as soon take life advice from a Chinese takeout fortune cookie as believe in tarot cards. But I'd lived with Tom Grandy long enough to recognize the truth no matter how it came to me. So on Thursday morning, I got my poppy's old gun, and I lay for my husband near Wildcat Bluff. Tom liked to run a trail out there. It was too far from the picnic grounds to attract most day-trippers, and he got his miles in early, when he could trust it would be his alone. That day, he had me for secret company. Not two hours ago, I'd gotten up before the sun to make him real biscuits. I'd cut Crisco into flour until it felt soft, like powdered velvet. I'd mixed the dough and rolled it and pressed out circles with the top of a juice glass. I'd fried bacon and then cooked two eggs sunny-side up in the grease. I had loaded his grits with salt and cheese and put thick pats of butter to melt on everything that looked like it could hold butter. There must have been a thousand calories and fat alone floating on that plate. I'd often made him devil breakfasts like this after fights, so I hadn't thought of it as a last meal. It was more of an absurd apology, like me saying, Baby, I'm scared I might blow holes in you later, but look, I made you the naughty eggs. Last night, I'd made sex for him, too, in the same way, buttery, slick, and fat with all the things he liked best. An hour before the sex... He'd held my head sideways in his big hand, my other cheek pressed into the cool plaster of the wall. I'd been pinned, limbs flailing helpless sideways, while he ran four fast punches down one side of my back. Then he'd let me go, and I slid down the wall into a heap, and he'd said, Lord, Roe, why do you push me like that? I didn't say a word. He knew the answer. We both knew. I was a good wife most times. But I was made like nesting dolls. I had something bad. Some other girl buried way down in the meat of me. That inside girl was the thing that needed to be hit, that deserved it, and I called it to her. 
Last night, I'd lay coiled on the floor at Tom's feet, wondering why a big man like him couldn't hit through, could never hit me hard enough to reach her. On Tuesday morning, I'd driven my elderly neighbor, Mrs. Fancy, to the airport. She'd come over the week before with a plate of her hot cheese cornbread and asked me if I would drive her. She was on a fixed income, and I knew four days of airport parking would be a trial for her, so I'd lied and said I'd love to spend a solid hour fighting highway traffic. I owed her more than a ride to the airport, as good as she had been to me. We can take my Honda, Mrs. Fancy had said, smiling her thanks at me with her brown eyes squirrel bright. You're saving me the parking row. At least let me save you the gas. Since my ancient Buick got about twelve miles a gallon with the wind behind me, I was happy enough to take her in the Civic. That would have been the end of it if I hadn't helped Mrs. Fancy tote in all her luggage. The gypsy was standing near the airport's little coffee shop like she'd been waiting for me, like she'd known that I was coming. That gypsy looked at me and knew me. She saw me whole, inside and out, as if my skin was made of glass. She laid her tarot cards for me, and that reading, it was like she took my life and ran it through a Cuisinart. She told me it was Tom or me, and God help me, I believed her. As I drove home after, I was shaking so hard I liked to run off the road. I pulled onto the shoulder and sat, trying to remember how to make my lungs work right. My hands gripped the steering wheel so tight the knuckles had gone bloodless. As I looked at them... A chill, small voice rose up inside of me, not shaking at all. It said, clear and cold, What we got here is an almost anonymous car for three days. That could be right useful. So instead of taking the Honda back to Mrs. Fancy's garage, I'd parked it on a busy street a few blocks over. The hours until Mrs. Fancy's return began ticking backwards in my head like a countdown. I was set to pick her up come Friday, so this muggy Thursday morning was my last chance. As I'd made Tom's final butter-logged breakfast, my eat-in kitchen had looked as fake as a movie set, the sunflowers nodding cheerful on the wallpaper, the mellow old linoleum gleaming under its fresh coat of mop and glow. I'd whisked about, wiping down the countertop and washing the cook pans like I was in a live cartoon, hand-drawn into a sunshiny kitchen. "'You trying to kill me, woman?' Tom said when I set the plate down in front of him. My mouth had gone slack, and he'd grinned up at me. He tucked into the bacon, eyes closing as he chewed. "'I can feel my arteries hardening, but my tongue don't much care.' I'd managed to get my lips to close before drool fell out. He'd broken the yolk with one of the biscuits and said, You're going to get me as fat as your damn dog. Gretel had thumped her tail on the floor in honor of the word dog or maybe the word fat. She knew both words meant her. Gretel was mine. She was a khaki-colored mutt, mostly hound dog, but Tom always said at least one of her ancestors must have been a piece of carpet as much time as she spent sprawled out snoozing on the floor. I'd listened to the real sound of her tail on the linoleum and thought to myself, this is how to kill a man. I keep myself believing I won't, but I keep going until I am there and already doing it. It was a trick I was playing on myself, 
and it worked, even though I knew I was playing it. Tom left early. Before his run, he had to drop Fat Gretel off to get her shots, then go by his daddy's main store and put an antique Winchester in the safe. He practically had to drag poor Gretel. She knew a car ride alone with Tom meant the vet. Thirty seconds after the front door shut, I was butt up under the kitchen sink, digging my poppy's old forty-five revolver out from the stacks of rags behind my cleaning products. We had another forty-five and a thirty-eight at the house, both automatics, but they were registered. Not even Tom knew I had poppies. A gun this old and unused was off the books even before I stole it out of a shoebox in my daddy's closet and carted it halfway across America. It's the kind of gun a certain type of cop would like to have on hand. A drop weapon, they call it, because they can lay it down by the body of a bad man and say that he pulled first. The pen had broken off years ago, and since revolvers don't have safeties, I took the barrel out to travel it. Until I put the barrel back in and latched it, it was only two lumps of inert metal. I dropped both pieces in a target bag. Then I ran back to our room to grab a handful of bullets out of the gun safe. While I was there, I changed into baggy dark jeans and a floppy t-shirt, tucking my long dark hair under a baseball cap. Short as I was, in these clothes I looked like a kid. No neighbor, catching a glimpse of me trit-trotting down the street near school bus time, could possibly think of pretty, feminine Roe Grandy. I jogged to Mrs. Fancy's car and got in. I shoved my gun under the passenger seat, then I started up the car and headed out to Wildcat Bluff. On the flat land behind me, Amarillo stuck up like an ugly thumb, and I was glad when the rare hills near the bluff began to hide it. I parked in a pull-in lot that bellied up to the woods, a mile and change past the lot Tom favored. Counting the time it would take for him to finish his errands, I was a good half hour ahead of him, but I found myself running down the trail like he is fast after me. The target bag banged against my leg, the loose bullets jangling. I made myself slow to a measured jog and breathe deep, scanning the woods for the right spot every time the trail took a sharp turn. Ready, Teddy, hands rock steady, as Daddy used to say when he was teaching me to shoot. He'd started me on twenty twos when I was so small the knockback from a thirty-eight would have pitched me over. At a hairpin curve near the middle of Tom's route, my gaze caught on an underdark beneath the waxy leaves of a thicket of ground ivy. I paused. Peering down, I could just make out the lip of a long ditch running like a crossbar to the point of the trail, about a yard past the first row of trees. Perfect. I slid myself into the woods, easing between the questing offshoots of a honeysuckle vine. I curved my spine to limbo under branches. I slipped each foot between the high fronds of ground fern to the dirt underneath, precise, like I was stepping into strappy shoes. Once off the trail, I looked back the way I came and saw every leaf unbent, every twig unbroken. Even Davy Crockett wouldn't think so much as a rabbit had passed. Some days, it's good to be slight. Some days, it's not. I could feel the bruises running in a chain down my back, left of my spine, four in a vertical row. The purple-black bloom in the center of each was the size of Tom Grandy's fist, and the yellow and pale green mottling was different around each, like the offsparks from a firework 
caught in a picture on my skin. They ached me something fierce as I squatted to check the trail's visibility through a green haze of leaves. Down in the ditch, I'd have a clear view up the slope. I would see him coming. He'd be at the top of the gentle hill, the rising sun's light in his face. I'd wait to shoot till I could see the whites of his eyes. Better yet, I'd watch his Roman profile pass, his short forehead leading directly into his long, straight nose, his wide mouth set in a line as he pushed himself. His blonde hair would be darkened down by sweat. I knew every line of his face. I loved them all. The beauty of my laying at the hairpin was that I would see him going, too. His familiar face might stay my wifely hand as he passed, but I could bury two bullets in the anonymous back of his head. As I lowered myself down in the ditch, motion caught my eye. At the other end, perched on a branch, a long-legged burrowing owl was swiveling his head around in a perfect half-circle to face me. He'd been sitting still, and his mottled feathers blended with the shadows so that he'd been invisible until he moved. He was perched on a root, head poked up over the lip. He was unconcerned, sure that he was not what I was hunting. Still, his round eyes, gold and blank, looked mildly affronted by my intrusion. Leave if you don't like it. I have business here, I told him. But I didn't sound like myself. The words came out pure Alabama, neglected consonants, long vowels. If the owl had had shoulders, he would have shrugged. He was a witness, not a judge. I kneeled down in my half of the ditch, and he stayed in his. I said, oh, Lord, I'm talking to owls. I might well be crazy enough to shoot my husband. Now I could hear the sharp, small twang Texas had given me. Half a dozen years here, and my voice had grown corners. The owl fluffed himself. He didn't like me breaking the quiet morning. I shouldn't be making noise anyway. I scrabbled in the target bag, finding the loose barrel by feel and then picking out six bullets. I palmed five and slotted the last one into an empty chamber. It made a snicking sound, then the whispery rub of metal on metal as it slid home. And there I stuck, one bullet loaded, as if I were undecided. Nothing left to decide, I whispered, pure Alabama again. I didn't sound like Mrs. Roe Grandy, Tom's cool-mouthed wife whose tongue would not melt butter. I sounded like Rose May Lolly, a girl I'd buried years ago, when I was eight, the year my mother disappeared. She left her rosary and took her flowered shoes, the ones she seldom wore because the toes were stuffed with money. He was coming toward me now. I could hear him, his big feet pounding up the trail. My lips were moving soundlessly, but I recognized the shape of the words. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. My mouth was getting a jump start on the thousand rosaries I'd have to say to get clean after killing him. I felt the vibrations of his pounding run, heard his sure and steady gait. I socketed the barrel into the well-oiled cradle of the gun. I felt more than heard it slide home, while my lips shaped... Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. I saw the top of his head clear the gentle upslope of the trail. 
I pulled the hammer back, waiting for the cool metal to shift in my hands and come alive. This gun, put together, was stronger than the sum of the lumps that had bounced around in the bottom of the bag. I'd brought it with me all the way from Alabama, an object stolen directly from my childhood. It belonged to Rosemay Lolly, not to me. Rosemay had held this gun a thousand times, and each time it had felt as if her blood was circulating through it. It had always done her will as surely as her own hands did. But not today. Poppy's revolver was a dead bird cradled in my fingers. No heartbeat. I could feel the air Tom Grandy pushed ahead of him wafting past me, bringing me his scent. I looked down the barrel and saw that it was shaken. I was Roe Grandy, righteous in my bruises, shaking my hands to save my husband from myself. I tried to steady them, breathing in so deep it felt like I pulled the air past my lungs into my stomach, swallowing the next words, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our deaths. As the prayer ended, I thought to myself, put the gun down. These days, even Catholics get divorced. But if I left or started up with lawyers, he would kill me. The airport gypsy had told me so, and I'd believed her to the marrows of my ill-mended bones. God help me, I believed her still. Tom Grandy himself had told me he would end me many times across the table during breakfast, with his big hands wrapped around my throat, flexing to close me at his will, then granting me the barest sip of air. When he moved inside me like a savage, and I wept with it, it felt so good. Those times, it sounded like the sweetest promise ever made. Don't you ever leave me, Roe. I'll see you dead before I'll let you leave me. I'd long known I couldn't simply pack a bag and call a lawyer. But the gypsy had told me he'd also kill me if I stayed. I had never allowed myself to think that. When she said it out loud, I heard it ring in the deeps of me, true as gospel. One day, and soon, I'd push him so far he couldn't come back. He would put all of his big weight behind his fists and break me and be sorry later. Shooting him was only jump-starting some self-defense. Yet my weak hands shook, and my fingers felt rigid, unable to squeeze, and my mouth was shaping out another silent plea to Mary. He was rising over the slope like the sun. Two more of his huffing steps, and I could see his shoulders. Two more brought me a view of his trim waist, and it was then I realized that he sounded wrong. Tom kept fit, and so why that huffing breath? Was it my breath? Was I so loud? His footfalls had a shuffling echo. I had no time to be distracted by his noises. I sighted him down the length of my trembling barrel, and my vision blurred. I might have been crying. It seemed to me that he left a thin red wake like he was trailing a single mournful streamer. I let him be blurry, let the gun come into sharp focus. When I was little, before he even let me shoot a pellet gun, Daddy had shown me this very revolver in two pieces, innocuous. He let me look down the hole and put my finger in it. Rosemay, this is the only safety lesson you will ever need, Daddy said. But I'm going to tell you every time you shoot, 
until you know it in your guts. You see down that hole? You must never, never point that hole at anything, at anything ever, unless you want to see it utterly destroyed. He said it with no irony. While he and I together looked down that very hole, its dark eye looking back at me, the barrel cradled in my daddy's hands. Now I was sighted on the center of Tom's chest, where I had so many times pressed my ear to hear the boom of his large red heart. He was ten feet away. I was stiff, half blind with tears, and I knew then that I would let him pass unharmed. I was spineless enough to let him kill me when it came to that. My eyes closed, the gun pointing at air or the owl or Tom or nothing. I could see my own death, accept it, see his hands close around my throat too hard, too long. But I could not see Tom. All at once, my hands were loose and easy and my own, and I could squeeze the trigger. So I did. It seemed only half a second passed between aiming and my eyes closing, between looking at the back of my eyelids and my hands easing enough to let me pull. I was squeezing even before I felt the scalding tears that were pushed out of my closing eyes on my cheeks. The suddenly living gun contracted in my hands, once, twice, spitting bullets that I felt leave me before I heard the fierce crack of splitting air. Eyes still closed, tears dripping off my jaw now to spatter down my shirt. I heard a terrible, hupping yelp, surprised and not quite human. A great calm took me, and the gun became so massive and heavy that my hands dropped. The hole pointed into the earth. I opened my eyes. For a minute, I could not understand what I was seeing. Tom was standing, jaw unhinged, still trailing his thin red streamer. He was whole and unshot, upright on the trail. The noise grew, became a howling, and as Tom yelled, Hold your fire! Hold your fire! I saw the streamer was my old red leash, saw the tan, crumpled body behind him at the very apex of the slope, I had missed him, missed him entirely. I had shot my dog. The noise was Fat Gretel's noise, and I had shot my good, good dog. Time stuttered and slowed so abruptly that the next eight seconds was a series of Polaroid pictures. The first one was Gretel kicking on the ground, and I understood that Tom had brought my dog with him, running. Gretel had been that huffing echo, and now she was the wretched howling, and all at once I was so angry that the tears stopped. He was supposed to drop her at the vet, but he must have waited there until she had her shots and then brought her along to make her run. He was always wanting me to run the fat off her, even though I said to leave her be. I got Gret from the pound soon after we married, and she'd lived a sinless life with me for five years now. I didn't often cry, but when I did, she padded around and around me in worried circles, making houndy sorrow groans in her throat, keeping vigil till I stopped. She had earned the right to spread out happy on the floor and be as fat as she wanted. We moved forward, all of us, one frame. 
the owl burst upward in a panicked ball of feathers like a flare marking my spot. Gretel howled. Tom, spooked by the owl, yelled, You moron, hold your fire! We are here! My mouth gaped open, and nothing came out but a thin whine of released air. He couldn't possibly have heard my breath, but Tom started toward me. Gretel's howl broke and wavered, becoming a long, betrayed yodel. The sound went on and on as if she would never inhale again. I squatted in the ditch, inert. He reached the hairpin in two elongated lopes that ate up the ground between us. He was coming to drag me out and kill me. Now. For one frame, I was helpless skin, half-filled with air, floppy and useless. In the next frame, I was Rosemay again. The separation I'd felt earlier ended, and there was no girl inside a girl. I was Rose, and here was Tom coming toward me like always, this time to kill me. There was my dog, hurt on the ground, needing my help, and Tom stood between us. My hands lifted the gun, rock steady, one eye squinched shut, and I went for the headshot, twice. I had no time for true aim. My bullets whined past his left ear. They came so close, he must have felt the heat of their whistling trail. Tom guttered to a halt, and I watched him understand that this was not someone shooting. This was someone shooting at. He wasn't headed toward a stranger's dumb mistake. He was heading into bullets, purposeful and aimed. He dove sideways as I tried to get a bead on him, his body an indignant line that disappeared into the trees on the left side of the trail. Gretel stopped yodeling. I listened hard terrified she was gone, and then caught the sound of her ragged breathing. I could feel a scream building up inside of me, swelling, pushing up into my throat. I turned the gun sideways and banged myself in the head with the flat side, hard enough to daze myself and stop it. Two bullets passed Tom's ear, two in my dog. I had two left. I crouched low in the ditch, gun pointing at the lip. I listened for his creeping sounds to come at me from one side or another. Tom was smart. He would choose a route and come as quiet as he could to the spot the owl had marked. When he looked down into the ditch and saw that the face of the shooter was his rose face, maybe there would be a pause in him, a small window where I could finish this. That close, I wouldn't miss. I would have to shoot him if I wanted to live long enough to save Gretel. Fat Gretel moaned. I heard her feet scuffling against the dirt. I poked my head up just over the lip, alligator style. And there was Tom. He was back on the trail, bent over her. My hands were steady. My eyes were clear. I lifted Poppy's gun and lined him up, tracking him. My fingers tightened. Two bullets left and I could feel how perfect the shots were, one in the spine as he bent over, one in the head. Then he scooped up Gretel. My breath caught, and my mouth rounded into a surprised O. Oh. He was not creeping through the trees, seeking out the shooter. He was not turning tail and sprinting away as fast as his strong legs could carry him. He was risking himself to rescue my dog. 
The skin on his back shuddered like a horse's skin, and I knew he felt my sights creeping across him like flies. He lifted fifty pounds a dog like she was nothing, adrenaline assisting the hours he'd spent lifting weights and running this trail. He started loping away, slow, hampered by my crying dog. He ran serpentine, trying not to be an easy target, but Gretel ruined his balance and his speed. So he was. I could have shot him with no effort. I tracked him, but my finger remained slack against the trigger. His courage and his weighed-down grace knocked me breathless. I watched him risk his hide for a dog he'd never had much use for, saving her because she was mine, because I loved her so. He zigzagged away as fast as he could, all the while feeling the black gaze of the gun on his back. It was the most romantic thing that I had ever seen. I'd stopped the Hail Mary a while back, I realized. Now a rhyme was running in my head from the Grimm's fairy tale book my mother used to read to me when I was too small to shoot anything but a BB gun. Oh, snowy white, oh, rosy red, will you beat your lover dead? It was a poem from a prince trapped in bear form. He slept on Snow White's hearth, and she and her sister, Rose Red, would beat the snow out of his fur and roll him back and forth between them with their naked feet. He'd say the rhyme to make those rowdy girls be gentle with him. The bear's poem looped around and around, catching and matching the weaving bob of Tom's head as he ran serpentine away down the hill, ungainly but whole. My finger stayed lax. Only that morning, I'd lifted my face open like a posy for him to lean down and kiss. Only that morning, I'd gotten up early to fix his eggs. Then I'd come out here ahead of him to drop the body I had fed, leave it to keep the ants company in these green woods. Tom's blonde head set behind the slope. He was gone. I pulled the gun back into two pieces and dropped them in the bag. I leaned forward in the ditch and put my face into the earth. I felt roots poking me. I'd started crying again without noticing. I was crying for Gretel and for my own spineless love. I wept until my bones went liquid, and then I wept them out. I lay against the ditch like a tired piece of rag. An idle part of me began to wonder where Tom was. I felt like I'd been lying in the dirt and crying for hours, but when I looked at my watch, I saw less than ten minutes had passed. There was a shell gas not two miles away, and they'd have a payphone. I wanted to call Tom and ask how Gretel was, where he was taking her, if she was still breathing, but I didn't know where to reach him. Tom's skinflint daddy had yet to join the rest of the world and replace Tom's pager with a mobile phone. He'd take Gretel to the vet, I thought, and then what? Home? The police station? I sat up straight, pulled up in the sudden understanding that I didn't have to track him down. He would be tracking me, and soon. Men who got shot at called their wives the very first minute they could. I scrambled up out of the ditch, clutching my bag. I could not have Tom wondering where his wife had been, not today of all days. 
When his call came, Roe Grandy had to be at home in a daisy yellow skirt and ballet flats, tenderly hand-washing the sticky yolk off Tom's breakfast dishes. I took off for the car at a dead run. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, visit kqed.org slash writersblock. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.